welcome to the All Souls Forum. As a reminder, KKFI is changing its on-air schedule. As part of this change, the All Souls Forum will move from Thursday noon to Tuesday evenings at 7 p.m. beginning January 23rd. And now, here is today's presentation, The Need for Criminal Justice Reform in Kansas, with Teresa Woody. Kansas, working to improve the criminal and juvenile justice systems in Kansas, as well as some other initiatives that they work on. And I'll let her tell you some of the other stuff. She is has been the trial lawyer for 30 years, practicing in a variety of areas, including business litigation, environmental litigation, reproductive rights, and civil rights litigation. At Kansas Appleseed, Teresa oversees litigation in to encourage systemic change that betters the lives of many. And so, welcome, Teresa. Thank you, and, and good morning. Um, I'm Teresa Woody, and uh, I'm with Kansas Appleseed. I became their litigation director about five years ago. They had uh, wanted to add litigation as a tool to their tool chest, and so I was their, am their first litigation director. Kansas Appleseed is a statewide uh, advocacy organization in Kansas. Um, our headquarters is in Lawrence, but we also have um, uh, presence in Wichita, Iola, Emporia, Garden City, and Holcomb, Kansas. We have four main advocacy areas. One is called our Thriving Program, and the, the um, gist of that is to basically end hunger, particularly childhood hunger in Kansas, and also uh, work on housing issues because, of course, Kansas has lack of affordable housing just as, as most places in the country. Um, we also have our, our integrated voter engagement uh, the campaign. And that is where we try to encourage individuals and communities to not only to vote and to and we and we protect voting rights. We have a case right now where we've are uh, we've sued the, the state over the legislature's statutes to try to um, strangle voting rights in Kansas. Um, but uh, we also encourage people to run for office, and so we have a lot of you know how to run for office kinds of seminars and go out into the community and really let people know that it's really important to be involved in your local elections because I think a lot of times people kind of gloss over their local elections, but those are the elections that can have the most direct impact on people's lives. And so we really try to get people to understand that they can be involved in their community and that they should be interested in their uh, local elections. We have our child welfare campaign. Uh, we are overseeing uh, a settlement that we um, we had with the, this Department of Children and Families and uh, uh, some of the other organizations or agencies in Kansas that oversee the foster care system. And we are continuing to monitor that. Uh, in the settlement, the state agreed to meet certain parameters and make certain improvements. Um, and so we're continuing to monitor that um, just to see legislative, the executive branch, and when necessary, litigation. 
Um, one of the things I wanted to talk a little bit about today is juvenile justice reform. Kansas Appleseed has been really involved in juvenile justice uh, reform. Many uh, Several years ago, we undertook and were successful in getting a bill passed to focus on community programs for youth offenders rather than incarceration. And as a matter of fact, there's only one uh, one jail, uh, state jail for uh, juveniles now, and we're hoping someday to get that one closed. Um, that's always under assault. There's money set aside for it. And a couple of years ago, they raided the money. We were successful in getting them some of the, getting all of the money put back in the in in that um, pot for the for the juveniles. And one of the things that we've seen lately in the is in the foster care system where they have children who are hard to place, um, you know, and who really need mental and behavioral health assistance. Uh, what they want to do is instead say that they're delinquent and, you know, incarcerate them. So we fight that all the time uh, within both our justice, our just campaign and our child welfare campaign. Uh, one of the things that we're pushing this year is an anti-shackling bill for juveniles. The Supreme Court has said that there's a presumption that an adult offender or adult accused of a, of a crime should not be shackled um, in, in, in court, uh, only if there is something that, you know, they are known to be violent or there's some issue that would lead them to need to be shackled. But it's not, it, but the presumption is against shackling. Kansas is one of only 11 states in the country that doesn't have that protection for juveniles. And juveniles are routinely shackled in court, um, which is, you know, very, um, it, it's, it's just, it, it gives the appearance that they're guilty. Um, it interferes with their ability to assist in their defense. It sometimes imposes on the attorney-client relationship. And it's very traumatic. It's very traumatic for these children to be in shackles in a, in a, in a situation where they're already you know, very, very uncomfortable and, and scared. So um, we have a bill. We've had it for the last couple of years. Sometimes it takes a while to get these things done. But um, we have a bill to try to stop that and, and have it be the same as it is for adults. That there's a presumption that a child should not be shackled unless they're unless there's some indication that they have that they're violent or something like that, which is rarely the case. Another big, uh, a big goal of ours is to eliminate fees and fines really for the whole system, but, but starting with juveniles. And again, when you have a child who's in the juvenile justice system, um, a lot of times there are um, uh, other ways to go. There are these programs. A lot of times you, if it, you can get a diversion. Um, but in Kansas, it costs in some, in some counties $500 to get into the diversion program. And so if, you're, if the child doesn't have $500, the child may not be able to get into diversion even though they would have qualified for it otherwise. And so a child who can, whose family can afford the $500 may go into diversion, go through the diversion program, and end up with no criminal record if they complete it successfully, which most do. Uh, and the child who didn't have the $500 will um, have a, a juvenile criminal record, which believe me, even though they're supposed to not follow you, they do. Uh, and so it's a very inequitable system. In addition, 
Um, there's all kinds of, of fine, you know, court costs, fines. They can be fined up to a thousand dollars. Well, well, what happens is, if you don't have the money to pay the fine, um, you know, a lot of times people try to get the money in a way that's not legal, um, and so they end up in more trouble. Or that debt just follows them and grows because it's, there's interest and there's penalties for not, you know, for not paying it and so forth, and so. Ultimately, you have, um, you know, a, a huge debt that they, just, you know, they really can't pay. Uh, and this is the same for adult offenders as well. So, you know, our goal ultimately would be to get to fines and fees out of the system because they really don't do anything. They're, they're, not, they're not really going to prevent people from uh, being recidivist, um, really. In fact, they kind of encourage the other, uh, the other result. Um, and... It's really, it, it goes even over into the civil system. For instance, there are 170,000 Kansans who have a suspended driver's license because of their inability to pay fees and fines. Um, and we've been working on that for several years. Last year, we managed to get a little piece of that changed. Prior to last year and the bill that was passed, if you had a DUI, you could get a hardship license. If you lost your, if you had your license suspended because you had a DUI, you could get a hardship license that lets you drive to to work, drive to school, drive to doctor's appointments. But if you had your license suspended for failure to pay fees and fines, you could not get a hardship license. Uh, I mean, this is you know, this is so counterintuitive. Um, you know, uh, obviously, if a person can't work, can't get to work. Um, they're not going to be able to pay the to get the money together to pay the fees and fines, and again, those grow and grow. So, we continue to try to really take fees and fines out of the system, um, and that is um, one of our, you know, ongoing constant uh, um, efforts. We work with um, the Debt Free Justice Coalition. We're part of the Debt Free Justice Coalition. And so we are working to try to get those um, those fines and fees eliminated, but especially starting for juveniles, because that's an that's a time when if the, if you can get the child into a diversion, you know, if you can get there early and help them when you know at the front end, uh, you may really change the tar the, the trajectory of their of their life. Another way that fees and fines can impact um, uh, people in the justice system is through expungements. Kansas actually has a pretty good expungement statute where, at, you know, except for the most violent of crimes, after a period of time, uh, people who ha have, uh, you know, not uh, repeated crimes can actually go in and apply for expungement and get it absolutely taken off their record. Um, but that many times, if they have an outstanding fee or fine, they can't get it expunged, even though they have complied with everything they you know need to comply with. Have not um, you know have not uh, had any other offenses. Those kinds of things. They still can't get it expunged if they owe money for a fee or a fine. And sometimes when that started, it was as little as you know one hundred and fifty, two hundred and fifty dollars. But now it's like six thousand, sometimes ten thousand, because of all the interest and the and the penalties and such. So, um, and, and that's a really important thing. I mean, people don't think about it, but if you have that on your record, it really affects not only your ability to get a job, 
it affects your ability to get housing. It is extremely difficult for people who uh, have a criminal history to get decent housing, even if they have a job, even if they have all of, uh, you know, um, you know, clearly pay for the rent, even if they haven't had an incident for years. It's still on their record. And that's why it's so it's so helpful to get those expungements because it takes it off your record. But if you can't get that because you, you have these outstanding fees, it's really um, it's really a, a terrible issue. Um, another area that we really work in is real the right to real and effective count, uh, counsel and the real right to counsel, not the kind of right <laughs> right to counsel that's kind of what we have now. It was for indigent people many times, which is lip service, but um, really difficult for them to get the counsel they need. And it's important, especially for them to get the counsel they need early on. Um, because if if people have the um, ability to access counsel early on, they may get bail, but but they may get bonded out. They may get you know they could get uh, released on their own recognizance. But if they don't know that and they don't have counsel, and sometimes many times the first time a person appears in court is going to be the time that the that the court makes a decision as to the bond or whatever. But they don't have a they don't have counsel at that time because counsel hasn't been appointed yet, and if that if that happens, they may you had two people again one who has the ability on their own to uh, to hire an attorney and one who doesn't, and the one who does may get a you know a small modest bond and and be out waiting for the the you know the next uh, steps in their in their case, and the one who doesn't can sit in jail for many, many months sometimes be before they actually sometimes even get appointed a lawyer in certain instances. Uh, and so, you know, it's really important to look at things like no cash bail. Um, you know, if, if a person has, if there's a reason to keep somebody in custody because of the nature of the crime, their, uh, you know, a history of violence, a domestic issue where there may be violence, that's one thing. But just just putting everybody, in, you know, forcing bail on people, for, particularly for, you know, things like possession of drugs, you know, nonviolent issues. I mean, that can really, really have a huge impact. I mean, most of the, you know, the studies show that if a person is detained in jail for three days, they've lost their job and they're well on their way to losing their their house, their their housing and their families. Uh, has terrible impact on families, terrible impact on, you know, not just on the person who's charged, who's, you know, accused of the crime, um, but on their families as well. And we have had instances where somebody stayed in jail for 200 days and then their charges were dismissed. So, you know, so, and, and there's nothing they can do about that. And of course, you know, they don't have, now they don't have a criminal history, but they also don't have a job and they, and they, you know, it's terribly impacted their family and they've spent two, 200 days of their life sitting in jail. So it's really important not only to get rid of the bail idea, but to get effective counsel to people. And everybody knows it's not just Kansas. Everybody knows that there are issues with, 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 adequate indigent defense in in, um, in in criminal cases in Kansas <laughs> there's not a there's the there's the um, there's the um, 
Board of Indigent Defense um, is, is the board that oversees basically what we call public defenders. And Kansas doesn't have public defenders throughout the state. There are many counties that don't have public defenders. Now, sometimes they have great lawyers who, you know, step up and, and, and are able to be appointed, but that doesn't necessarily cover everybody. Uh, and a lot of times, you, in a lot of places, you don't have qualified criminal defense counsel in some of these smaller counties. In some counties, there are a couple counties in Kansas that don't even have one lawyer. Uh, and so it's super important to have the public defender's office be throughout Kansas. And we're working on that. Uh, we every and fortunately, in the last couple of years, the legislature has stepped up and actually allocated some funds for increasing public defender's office. Wyandotte County has a public defender's office just in the last year or so. Uh, Douglas County, Lawrence, um, we're working on that. I mean, that's, I mean, I think that's shocking that some of these larger counties don't have it. But then when you look out at some of the rural counties, um, it's really, really difficult and they really don't get the kind of, um, of you know, um, representation that they need uh, to really have effective right to counsel. So that's another area that we're, we, we continue to work on is the, you know, reduction or, or elimination of bail, uh, cash bail, and, um, and, you know, really trying to get more attorneys and available to uh, folks in, um, it's particularly in rural, in rural areas. And then I'm, the last thing I'm going to talk about here is a case that we have on file. Um, it's a federal case that we brought with the, along with the Kansas ACLU. And Shakardi Bacon here in town is our pro bono counsel because we are, we're a pretty small force. <laughs> I am. The, the legal department of Kansas Appleseed. So uh, I can't do all those things, obviously myself. But with but with when we get together with other groups, and when we have you know willing pro bono counsel, we really can do some great things. And in this, we filed this case against the um, the gang the gang statute in Kansas. We believe it's unconstitutional because what it does is it allows an individual officer to designate a person as a criminal member of a criminal street gang based on the officer's single officer's observations of certain vague criteria such as tattoos certain kind of tattoos um colors that they're wearing red for instance oh that's a blood you know blue you're a crip you know um, those kinds of things, uh, and the people that you're hanging around with. So you don't have to be even suspected of a crime to end up being labeled a member of a criminal street gang, which means you're a criminal, right? Uh, and, and Wichita is one of the worst offenders of misusing the statute. They have a gang list. It has over 4,000 people on it. Um, you can... Uh, you can imagine that um, very there aren't any proud boys on it. No oath keepers, uh, you know, no three percenters. But there are plenty of uh, young African American men, young black men, and brown men on this very disproportionately. Uh, and we are representing four of those individuals plus an, uh, 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 an organization called Progeny, which works with previously incarcerated youth. 
um, to try to get rid of the gang database down there and to, and to hold the statute unconstitutional. Um, we filed a class action. We have gotten that class certified. We're in front of a federal judge uh, in Kansas, and uh, we have a trial setting for May 7th. So we are you know, really working hard to get rid of that because it has a terrible effect. I mean, again, it's a stigma, and that's one of our claims. You, you're put on this gang list. It's a stigma. They, Wichita actually has a database where they, and they, you know, they can look up and, oh, this guy's, you know, I stopped this car. This guy's on the gang list. You know, so they approach that person quite differently than they might approach somebody else in a traffic stop. Um, once you're on that list, you cannot get off. They, you can be labeled, if, if, you, if there's three years go by and you haven't done anything else to be meeting any of those criteria, you can become what they call inactive. But you can't get off. Your name is still on the list. And to, to, to get to, to be reactivated, we had a case, one of our, one of our clients, is in his in his he's he's going to be fifty. He's been on the list for you know twenty five years or more, almost thirty years, and um, he keeps getting put back on the list, even though um, he's had you know he had like a drug of you know, a drug possession offense years ago. He keeps getting put back on the list for things like they saw him on social media wearing Philadelphia Phillies hat, and they and they it's a red hat, and they you know they feel, they say well that's a it's a gang hat. Um, that's, that's, you know, and they, and they, they also watch social media routinely. They, they know the some of the officers have fake accounts, <clears throat> excuse me, they go on, they go on social media and they look for things. So like if you're hanging out and you're singing some stupid song with your friends and a bunch of kids are throwing up gang signs, well, that can get you put on the gang list right there without them ever having actually any interface with you. And as one of the lawyers who worked on on the the case with me, who said I, she grew up Mennonite, she said, "In our community, we throw gang signs. It's just you know, it's just kind of a stupid thing to do, um, you know." And um, so that's the kind of thing that you know is going on with that list. And what we want is to have the the statute declared unconstitutional, so it can't be used anywhere in the state of Kansas, but specifically in Wichita, that that they cannot use these vague criteria to put people on the gang list. And, and we want them to have to take everybody off the gang list. And to um, if they're going to have a gang list, it needs to be tied to an actual gang crime. Um, and um, there needs to be a way to appeal, to appeal it. Because right now, if you're on the list, you can't appeal it. There's no way. You, you, you're, you can't, you know, there's no, there's no um, process for you to go through to ask to uh, get off the list and say, hey, you made a mistake. Or, you know, um, you know, I was a kid. I was just doing something stupid. But, you know, look at my record. I've never done anything else. No way to do that. So that's what we're hoping to change. And that's coming up in May. So we're, um, we're going forward on that. So that's the kind of stuff that that we're involved in. So look, kind of a little taste of some of the things we do in that particular area. <laughs> and again, we have all these other campaigns that we work on. Um, so we're small but mighty. There's only 12 of us throughout the state uh, in Ka Kansas Appleseed. but um, we 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 work really hard to get things done through the legislature, and if that doesn't work, through litigation sometimes. So thank you, and I guess we're going to take a break, and then we can have some questions. All right, thank you, Teresa. And I didn't help but notice you are wearing a red shirt and red shoes. 
<laughs> so. Right. Well, that's that's what I that's what I told. Uh, we had a mediation in this case, and that's what I that's what I said. Red and black are my favorite colors. I wear them all the time. My my wardrobe is filled with red and black. So I guess I'm a blood because I I'm wearing red and black. I'm hanging out with guys who are labeled gang gang on the gang list because they're my clients. You know. So, you know. So. Okay. So so we'll take a break. Um, so coming up on January 14th is Warheads to Windmills. January 21st is Promoting Public Safety Through Collaboration Innovation. And then January 28th is State of the City with Mayor Lucas. If you have questions, come up here. Make sure you talk into the mic. I noticed there's another gang that wears red hats. Um, they could be on the list. Yeah, it's it's really amazing the, the the sloppy criteria that it takes to get on the list, and it, it's it's amazing. Um, and as I said, it's rarely applied to. I think on I think on the list, there's maybe less than five percent of the people on the list are are Caucasian. Everybody else is is a person of color. It's it's very sad. Uh, this was some time ago, but there was uh, some news coverage of. Children having to stay in state office buildings. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could talk about the causes for this problem and is anything being done about this at the current time? Could you talk about that? Absolutely. Um, that's part of our foster care case. In fact, we brought that case because of the placement instability. We, we sued over two things. Uh, uh, lack of placement stability for, for kids in the foster care system and lack of mental health access. And these are the kids I was talking about, the hard to place kids. Um, and um, rather than getting the mental health or behavioral health that they need, uh, they were being housed in offices. And not just a few of them, a lot of them. Uh, and um, then they also had what they called night-to-night -night placements, which meant that you, you, the kid would go after seven o'clock at night go to a house, maybe, and sleep on a couch. And then by seven in the morning, the caseworker would come and pick them up uh, and then take them all, all off, off and back to the office where they just sat in these offices all day, Didn't often didn't go to school. And they would do different places night after night after night. So here we had a kid who had like over 100 placements. It was like eight years old. Um, and, and then also, you may have heard there were some, you know, horrible things that happened with these kids staying in the offices, including some sexual assaults. Um, you know, so it's it. That's when, that's why we brought the lawsuit. It, we have um, greatly reduced the number of kids sleeping in offices, but they still have not totally fixed it. And in my mind, Kansas is the only state in the country that has an entirely privatized foster care system, meaning that. That, that the state contracts out all of its foster care work. Uh, and um, one of the things we have, a, 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 we have a report on that every year on how they're meeting. It's been the second report just came out this last year, uh, the second year of the settlement. Um, and, uh, you know, we work with them, try to get them to do, you know, and one of the big things that we just had a big, big meeting uh, in November and, um the meeting was to talk about the failures of the state to meet some of the um, goals and commitments of the settlement. Uh, and one of the biggest things that we're doing is trying to get them to um, 
put into place a very robust accountability system for these contractors. So we continue to work on that. Ultimately, if the state can't get their act together, we'll go back to the court and ask the court to enforce it. You know, unfortunately, you just, you just can't just magically say the stops um, without some transition because it was so bad and is still great. Uh, thank you. Uh, can uh, you please speak a little bit to how perhaps our justice system could be less uh, punitive and focused on punishment and a little bit more focused on uh, rehabilitation and opportunities for success once someone gets to the outside? Sure. I mean, that is uh, that's really the, at the at the heart of everything we're talking about, right? And particularly with the juvenile justice reforms that we've been working on and try to keep in place to keep kids out of being incarcerated and get them the programs that they need and get them the help that they need. And particularly, as I said, there's a lot, there's a dearth of mental health uh, available for kids. Um, in many instances, in, in the foster care system, what we saw was if they were bouncing kids around, the kids would get on the list for mental health um, in a certain county where they were living, um, and then they would get moved, and they would get on, and then they'd go back to the bottom of the list in that county, uh, and so they were rarely getting any assistance. A lot of times, if they had medications, they were being um, they were being transferred. The, their medical records were not transferred, um, and so you know it's really important to keep kids out of the the, the, the incarceration area and and into more robust programs. And it's the same for adults. I mean, I think we've seen that, you know, what we've what we really have, have had happen is just this huge, you know, for-profit prisons system uh, that, you know, um, punishes people, doesn't really give them any kind of, um, you know, opportunity to uh, to learn skills, to do different, you know, to, to really get out of that system. Now, there are some there are some people who are working on that here in the Kansas City area. There's the um, Center for Conflict Resolution, and they go in to um, to help people manage conflict in ways that you know are not violent. And they do a lot of that in uh, in the prison systems around here. They do great work. Um, have wonderful mediators who go in and. And, you know, and have classes where they actually teach people to, you know, learn to mediate um, and to, you know, bring the temperature down uh, and to use different methods of resolving conflict other than violence. Um, so there are things that are going on there um, in Missouri. There's a Missouri apple seed over in St. Louis, and they have been working to um, with with people who get out of uh, when they get out of prison to make to you know to do their best to get them reintegrated into the system, reintegrated into the community, uh, you know, find them jobs, help them with housing, you know, all those kinds of things. Um, so they're not just kind of thrown out to the wolves, uh, and and that's one of the you know most common issues of recidivism. They're out there. They've got a criminal record. They're having a hard time getting a job, hard time getting a place to live. Uh, you know, big surprise when things don't work out the the best sometimes. So um, yeah, it's it's a it, it, we really need to focus much more on um, systemic assistance rather than systemic punishment. This is a little bit of a tangent because 35 years ago I was at SRS in foster care, 
And when I came to it, though I had a master's degree in social work, my classwork had nothing to really had very little to do with child welfare. So I came in rather novice. Um, so I, things weren't perfect then, but it's been so totally restructured. It's not at all the same. So, but one thing I'm wondering about, are there issues both with recruiting foster parents and social workers in those private agencies that are a significant part of the problem that, um, yeah, I don't think it's great to privatize everything, but is that, would the state be sitting on some of it directly anyway? You know, um, I'm going to go take a step back from that even and say that um, one of the biggest things the state can do to, for, as far as child welfare is to keep kids out of the foster care system to start with. Um, you know, it's really interesting because um, in the Brownback era in Kansas, uh, the safety social safety nets were cut drastically. All these work requirements were put into place, those kinds of things. And the number of kids in foster care almost doubled. Um, and because people mistake poverty for neglect. Um, and if mom and dad are working two jobs, trying to, you know, because then they don't have access to SNAP, they're trying to put food on the table and the house is dirty and the kids are, you know, maybe skip school some because nobody's around to kind of hold their feet to the fire. Then, you know, D DCF comes in and says, oh, neglect, boom, foster care. So one of the things that we've really pushed is on the front end, you know, let's give the let's give the bio families the resources we would give the foster families as far. I mean, if foster families get resources, right, they get dollars to help. They get, you know, they get help. Let's let's get that to the bio families before the kids get in the system. I mean, we can keep them out of the system. But yes, there is a dearth of there, there is a lack of uh, of of um, foster families. And it's not surprising when you see how, how this, the foster system has been managed. And yes, there is a lack of, of you know, case workers and, and social workers and, and things like that, because it's just debilitating. We had a, we've had a, we had a, you know, we, we got calls and still do, especially when we had the law, when we were in the middle of the lawsuit, <clears throat> we got all kinds of calls from workers in the system saying, here's what's going on. And I, one I will never forget, I talked about the night-to-night -night stays, um, and they were trying to push those numbers down so it didn't look so bad. So they told the this, this worker that if she couldn't place the kids by 7 o'clock, she needed to keep them with her. Yeah, and and so she was she was driving around with three children in her back seat, and they would pull over in Walmart parking lots to sleep. So you know, there's a lot of things that need to be done. You know, but but I think that there needs to be way more accountability for the contractors. I'm not saying that privatization can't work, <laughs> but it, it doesn't work if you're just you know, St. Francis. They just <laughs> If you read the papers, St. Francis, uh, which is one of the biggest providers, biggest private providers, has had all kinds of terrible stuff happen. Their, you know, the, their president was was taking money and going to Cubs games, you know, and you know all kinds of things like that. So, uh, yeah, there needs to be more accountability. Uh, our YouTube uh, audience has a question. You said they're asking, did you say that Wyandotte County had a 
was a second most, most populous county in the state, only recently got public defenders. Uh, what were they doing before that? They only recently got public defenders, and they were using the um, the 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 system where they had appointed counsel. Um, you know, they had counsel who the judges could appoint to be um, to be part of that, and they had some very good counsel. In fact, Mr. Lubo is one of the counsel that they that was appointed, and so they had some very talented, dedicated folks, but not enough. Uh, and and the courts didn't move fast enough. And so, yeah, amazingly, Wyandotte County did not have a public defender's office until like about a year ago. You follow up to the foster care thing. Back in the 90s, well, from about 86 to around 2000, early 2000s, I did mostly juvenile court. Mm-hmm. And the first half of that time was where we had uh, state agencies who were providing services and contracting with different companies on a short-term basis. One of the things that we had then, we had, at least in Wyandotte County, we had a couple private agencies that contracted with directly um, for in-home services. And some of those services were really spectacular. They kept kids from entering foster care. And then I think it was Brownback that privatized not only foster care thing, but many, many other agencies privatized as well. And all of those services disappeared. They awarded a contract to Caw Valley, one agency, that got to say and everything that was provided. So yeah, I mean, it, this foster care system was actually privatized back when Kathleen Sebelius was the governor, and the thought was, oh, it'll you know we'll have professionals. You know, I mean, they'll be able to do it more efficiently. You know, all those kinds of things. Um, but you're right; there still were these these programs that were in place, and and uh, you know, in the great uh, and glorious tax cutting uh, under Brownback. All those things got axed, um, and you know, SNAP became the tan of SNAP. You know, um, food assistance and housing assistance became um, much harder to get. Uh, and I think, like I said, that's when we saw this just this huge jump. And you can see, like we we know we we have the graphs. I mean, there are always kids who are going to need foster care because of abuse, right? So, but you could see that that line just kind of goes along like this. You know, pretty pretty straight, and the the line for neglect at that point went like this. I have uh, two questions about um, uh, with the experience of the uh, vote yes concept. Uh, um, would you comment on the, how the Kansas legislature is uh, sympathetic or lack of sympathy toward this cause? And then um, my other my other question is secondly. I used to own a piece of property down by the juvenile justice center, and daily the I would uh, I had a parking lot right across the caddy corner from it, and the I would get these parents that would come down, and and be very irate and be hostile, and you realize I, I realized that these uh, parents were not necessarily they were probably part of the cause of the problem of this juvenile issue. Is it is there a focus that you can place upon parents of juveniles that uh, would you comment on that? Sure. Um, and the first thing about the Kansas legislature, 
most of you know that the Kansas legislature has a Republican supermajority, um, and um, they've been pretty hostile to a lot of things that cost money. Um, and in fact, one of the reasons that we brought the lawsuit, the uh, and this was when Governor Kelly was in the legislature, there had been a big task force over the foster care system, and they came in and they made a host of recommendations. And the legislature chose to spend a little bit more money to hire a few more co uh, caseworkers. And that was it. And so we were like, okay, there you go. <laughs> so we filed a class action, uh, you know, to try to force things to change because the legislature wasn't going to do it. And as far as, as far as the parents, sure, uh, you know, parents can always play a part. And that's why it would make so much more sense to have the kind of services that um, that Craig was talking about, and that we're trying to reintegrate. There's a there's a great agency. It's a, a public, not a, a private um, organization called Foster Adopt Connect, and they have worked really hard in having you know the behavioral intervention. So, you know, if if your child is having behavioral issues, they can bring in the people who you know can help, um, and and hopefully keep the child either a in their bio home or if they're in foster care in the foster home. But yeah, I mean, those kind of programs need to be funded. And, and, and that's one of the key issues that we wanted to see is money on the front end. I think I may, may have not said it correctly. Um, the parents that I saw were parking in my lot just in real hostile. <laughs> and it seemed to me that they, that was the source of the problem more so but these kids assumed that certain behaviors were normal in a family atmosphere. And so uh, I'm wondering if there could be a focus on, on and looking at the family situation at the same time. And, sure, sure. I mean, and that's, you know, that's, that's what you try to do when you try to intervene on the front end. I mean, I mean, to be fair, a lot of these parents are very hostile because the system is screwing them royally. Uh, I, you know, one of my friends uh, here in town, Lori Snell, is a great lawyer, and she primarily represents bio parents in in the juvenile system because, um, you know, a lot of times they, you know, a lot of times they don't get a fair shake, um, it, as I said, because there's a propensity to say, oh, these are bad people, we'll take their children away from them, as opposed to saying, what can we do to help this family get the resources they need? Maybe they need family counseling. You know, what's going on in the in the family that's causing this hostility? I mean, you know, what are these issues? I mean, some of it is, you know, some of it's generational. I mean, it's generational trauma, right? Um, so, you know, those are the kind of things that you need to be really looking into. Uh, and that's, you know, in my mind, the best thing we can do is to, you know, prop up and, and give resources to the families because I, I, I've done a bunch of, you know, I, I used to get, get um, in Jackson County, Missouri, where I actually live, uh, you get appointed to represent um, kids and families. And you get appointed just because you're a lawyer, not because you know what you're doing <laughs> in that system. But, you know, just because your name's on the list, you get appointed. Well, when I was a young lawyer uh, at a big law firm, all the lawyers who got appointed, it would fall down to the youngest, least experienced associate. So I got to, I did a lot of that stuff. Um, and I can tell you, it was fascinating to me 
the, the kids wanted so badly to get back to their parents, they would lie. They would lie constantly to get back into situations, even where some abuse had occurred, because that's that bond is so strong. I'd like to raise the issue of one more complication, and that is along a state line. On one side, one thing is allowed or not, and on the other, it's different. And I've lived on two different times where I was on a state line. And so, for example, if an underage person wanted to drink, they had to decide which side did they go on. And I'm wondering how you handle things with state lines and how how that all works into everything. Yeah, um, you know, the, 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 the systems are totally they don't they don't coordinate really the missouri system and the kansas dcf missouri's uh, department department of families uh and kansas's have nothing to do with each other they're they're totally siloed they don't have anything to do with each other uh, and so you know that that can be very complicating um and one of the one of the problems that we've seen with the in kansas particularly is because um because it's carved up by these various private agencies, they sometimes don't coordinate because, um, for instance, you'd have a child that, say, is in um, Sedgwick County, is in Wichita, Wichita but, and the agency there doesn't have any more placement families in Sedgwick County. But maybe the other agency, Agency B, does have a place there. Well, Agency A doesn't want to place the child with Agency B because then they're not getting the money for that, right? So they take the kid and send him to Kansas City, to family in Kansas City or facility in Kansas City. So the child's totally uprooted, goes, you know, doesn't have their bio families, makes it very hard for them to visit them. Uh, you know, they're out of the school that they're, you know, and the community that they're familiar with and someplace totally different. It's, it's you know, it's really hard to be successful in those situations. But and sometimes they have contracted to send children to facilities in Missouri. Um, so there's that crossover a little bit, but there really is not the kind of coordination you would love to see. It's a problem. And one of the things that you mentioned before was the Kansas being one of the only 11 states that allow juveniles to be shackled. Uh, two questions about that. First of all, is there a difference between what they allow and don't allow if it's a juvenile jury trial versus just a court trial? Because when I practice juvenile from Judge Wayne and Judge Bull, we never, unless a child was acting out violently, they never had him shackled. Well, and I think that I think I think you're right. I mean, the courts, some courts do things one way and some courts do things very differently. And and the problem is there's no presumption across the state as to how the kid is to be treated. And so in one county or with one judge in a county and another judge in the same county might do it differently. I mean, yeah, they, you know, the judge can has control of the judge's courtroom. So the judge can say no shackling or I don't want it or you know, a lot of times it's just routine. Now, one of the issues in Kansas is, again, we have um, many counties that have very few lawyers, and we have counties where we don't have, where we, we have what we call magistrate judges. And to be a magistrate judge, you don't have to even be a lawyer. Um, so I have a friend who's a journalist who's a magistrate judge out in one of these 
uh, counties, and he works very hard to do the right thing. And, you know, but a lot of times you have people who have no idea. I mean, they're not lawyers. They're not familiar with how the system should work. Um, and so, you know, one of the one of the things that we hope is going to happen is this April, um, Justice Standridge, Justice Melissa Standridge of the Kansas Supreme Court has is convening um, a big um, conference from all over the state. And what they want to do is to kind of establish some, you know, across the state rules, regulations for the courts and the lawyers who practice in front of those courts with respect to um, children in care and uh, juvenile offenders. Because right now they're, you know, as Craig mentioned, one judge may be great, another judge has totally different philosophy or doesn't really understand he's in, he or she even has that ability to control their courtroom differently. I mean, what we see many, too many times is the court not look, listening to the kids, not listening to them, but just doing whatever the contractors say. The You mentioned some about hardship licenses before, and just this another similar situation where it's totally against intuition at all, is when people are behind on child support, they can get their licenses suspended. And that's really counterintuitive because, you know, if they're behind to start with, and if it's through no fault of their own, I'll specify that because some people just won't pay. If it's through no fault of their own and they get their license suspended, they lose their job, then how are you going to collect child support if you don't enable these people to be able to work? Well, and then there's another twist to that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. There's another twist to that. Um, they, the state was saying to the, to the, the custodial parent, well, you know, you're not entitled to some of these other things because you should just go after this person for for the, you know, back child support that's that's due you. You know, so what that you know, <laughs> cause even more tr stress and trauma in a stressful situation and not get the money anyway. Uh, you know, but you had to you know, you know that's silly all the way around. Thank you for coming. This was very helpful. A lot of information. Um, I was particularly struck with the shackles dilemma. And um, being in a healthcare background, both in nursing and psychology, part of the protocol now for new birth is to test the babies routinely for hearing capacity and uh, some other screening uh, mm -hmm. devices. What we know today about shackling and the extreme harm that cause just from that one action in terms of how it impacts negatively, um, is there any effort going forward to stop it? Yes. In order to just get right down to the beginning so you don't cascade? Because once I'm shackled, I have a certain injury. Yeah. No. And it cannot be erased. No. It's like dye in water. It happened. And so my question is, pivotally wise, when are we going to get to the point where that action is stopped for both the children and adults. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we're that, as I said, that Kansas Appleseed is doing is that we we have a bill to stop child shackling in Kansas, and we work on it every year, um, and we're working on it this year. And you know, we we 
you know, one thing I've learned in the five years I've been with Kansas Appleseed is that legislative stuff, especially in Kansas, is incremental. But we do sometimes get some of those things done. So we're working on it, and others are as well. Um, you mentioned the Proud Boys and white supremacy groups are an interest of mine. I also know that law enforcement is involved in those groups. So how are they classified? Well, um, you know, there are very few of them. They don't appear, if you look at, particularly in Wichita, they have a list of gangs. They have a list of like what they call active gangs. And it's the Bloods, the Crips, the Latin Kings, you know, all, all these um, specific, uh, uh, the you know, Viet boys, um, you know, all these that are really targeting people of color. Um, I've not seen Proud Boys on the list, and I've seen I've seen the list in Discovery. They're not on the list now. They do say that they have some white supremacists that who are on the gang list, but as I mentioned, there's probably less than five percent of the people on the list are white. I mean, you know, violence, uh, you know, you know, goes on all the time. Drug use goes on all the time. Drug sales go on all the time. Those are the same kind of things that that cause people of color to get put on the list, even if their crime isn't gang related. I mean, you can be a dope dealer and have nothing to do with gangs, you know. Um, and so, you know, and once I, one thing I forgot to say is once you're on that list, then if you go to trial for a crime, they can bring in the fact that you're a gang member, even if it had nothing to do with the crime you're charged with. And you, you can imagine how, the, you know, that affects the jury. Oh, you know, this horrible gang person. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, what, what you were saying is you can, you can have people in white supremacy groups who are, are, are in the uh, legislature. Yeah. Uh, sure, you know, um, and that's, that's why our voter engagement campaign is so important. So people can understand and, you know, research who they're voting for and especially on the local level, understand that they have, you know, that it's really important for them to participate. And that's why we encourage people to run for office, too. You know, if you don't like what's going on, run for office and we'll, we'll you know, here we'll have some, we'll explain to you, help you have a seminar how to do it. You talked about getting rid of the bail system. And I believe Illinois just did that recently. Yep. They're the first state in the country to do that. What do you think are the realistic prospects that will accomplish that in Kansas? I don't know. Um, you know, uh, I've seen some really strange things happen in Kansas lately. Uh, I've been involved in reproductive rights um, rep representation of Dr. Hodes and Dr. Nauser for over a decade. Um, and, um, you know, we saw, we saw the vote, we saw, you know, we saw the, uh, the amendment not get passed. Um, so I don't know. I mean, one of the problems we have in Kansas is we don't, we don't have the ability to put things on the ballot the way some other states do, like in Missouri, it's not easy, but you can get, you can get something put on the ballot. Like you can get, you know, um, recreational marijuana put on the ballot. You can get, you know, <laughs> All those other things, I, and hopefully Missouri will get a constitutional amendment that you know protects abortion uh, on this next ballot. Um, but um, 
so I don't know. I mean, that's a problem. Uh, I do think, though, there's some some signs that, you know, things are maybe improving. Uh, one of the problems you've seen in Kansas is you see you see all these people who run for office, you know, unopposed. Um, and because there's just this, oh, it's a it's a it's a this county, it's a that county, and they you know nobody even opposes these people. Um, I was out talking to some of the um, Johnson County uh, Johnson County Democratic women, South Johnson County, um, and they had I think there were 92 positions. This was all school boards, you know, city council that thing. 92 positions throughout Johnson County, and I think only two of them they didn't have a Democrat running in. So, I mean, I think I think there's the possibility for change. I never give up. I never give up or I, I wouldn't be doing this job. We're basically out of questions. I was going to mention the uh, another organization that does a lot of similar work and overlap at the national level. It's called the Pre-Trial Justice Institute. So if you Google, want to learn more, you can Google that and... There's a lot, and they work on the bail bonds and all that stuff. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the All Souls Forum. Join us next week on January 23rd in our new time slot at 7 p.m. Tuesday. And now, stay tuned for Jazz in the Afternoon, followed by the Happy Hour at 3 p.m. and the Heartland Labor Forum at 6 p.m. Right here on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio. Have a great day.